Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris and it is good to be back with you again podcasting today. It's been a while. It's been about three weeks since we have talked and that is primarily due to the fact that I took basically three weeks off from everything. I didn't work. I didn't uh, work on the film. All I did was uh, debate prep and debate filming for this uh, debate that Joel Richardson and I had on the topic of will the Antichrist be a false Jewish messiah? And I think it went really well. I'm actually quite proud of how it turned out, at least in terms of the way that I argued it and the way I answered the objections and those kinds of things. I will embed the video on the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com, and it should be a fairly long video, something like two and a half hours, maybe even more with uh, Derek's uh, intros and outros and everything. I haven't seen the final uh, version of it yet. But after that, I will also post the audio here on the podcast feed, since I know many of you are audio-only listeners and we're talking about a pretty long uh, uh, debate. So I'll post that in audio form as well. Before we get into that stuff, I wanted to mostly use this time to talk about some of the things I found in the Bible as I was doing the research and the prep for this debate, because I came across about three things that I'd never seen before that I thought were really cool, not just for bolstering my case, but also just really cool Bible prophecy things in general that I had never noticed. So uh, let's just start off with number one. So this first thing does kind of support my overall theory in this case that Jerusalem is Mystery Babylon, but uh, it's something I'd never noticed before. And I actually uh, mentioned it in the debate and said, hey, you know, this is a sort of unvetted theory. I just now noticed this, but I did talk with uh, Alan later about it. And he was like, oh yeah, that it, that does fit with the timeline and everything else. And he'd noticed it before. So maybe this isn't uh, as uh, hidden as I thought it was, but... Nevertheless, so at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, in this case, when the last bowl is poured out, okay, this is the, the seventh bowl in Revelation chapter 16, it says the following, it says, the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake that the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away so that no mountains were to be found and great hailstones and 100 pounds each fell from heaven and people and blah, blah, blah. So you get the idea. This is uh, the judgment of mystery Babylon. And in this case, it is the, the splitting the city into three parts, huge earthquake, etc. And at the seventh bowl, he does, by the way, call this the great city here, a term that he has also called Jerusalem uh, in this uh, this uh, chapter, and I'll talk about that in the post-debate, but um, but yeah, he, he calls it the great city here, which he also calls Jerusalem in Revelation 11. But what I want to talk about is in Zechariah 14, this is where the Lord, it's another picture of the, of the day of the Lord, and it is a picture of the Lord himself physically splitting the Mount of Olives into two. And it's timeline-wise, exactly where it's supposed to be if this was the same thing as the judgment of Babylon in terms of the last bowl at the end of the 70th week. And the Lord will go forth, and, and this is Zechariah 14, starting in verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights 
uh, in, in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azale. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, a couple things to notice here. This is unambiguously right in the same place of the timeline. So there's some circumstantial evidence at best. No one denies that the Mount of Olives is in Jerusalem. No one denies that the Mount of Olives will be split in two. I suppose right now the question is, is Revelation talking about being split into three parts? Is that necessarily ruling out if the Mount of Olives itself is split into two? I mean, is there another possibility for another split to happen? But I think more importantly to that is what we do know, which is that in Zechariah 14, what is happening, what is the function of the split in the Mount of Olives? And we see this and we can follow this uh, train of thought from other places, but he's, he's been leading these captives uh, from, from wherever they had been. And he's getting them out of Jerusalem. What does he say? Flee from Jerusalem. He has made this valley, this split, in order to give them a way to get out. What does that even imply about what, what is going on in Jerusalem? That you need to crack a mountain and, and, and create a valley in order to make a way of escape for your people. And what are they doing escaping from Israel? Isn't this the very last bowl of wrath? What, what would, number one, even be the purpose of fleeing Israel. The Lord is here. There's no reason to flee Jerusalem, right? The Lord is here. Why flee? Well, it just, it doesn't make sense unless, of course, uh, Jerusalem is Mystery Babylon. Uh, because you have, except for the split into three parts versus split into two parts, um, the timeline is the same. The concepts are the same. It's just the Mount of Olives being split into two. It's the city into three. So from the Mount of Olives perspective, you can have a split right down the middle and the city still splitting in three parts. So I don't see a contradiction there necessarily. Anyway, so that's the number one thing. This next thing is going to take a little bit more explanation, but it's basically a parallel uh, between the Olivet Discourse, so Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and uh, Daniel 11 and 12. Okay, so let's just start talking very basically about these two passages. Uh, the Olive Discourse, the disciples ask uh, Jesus a question. They say, you know, um, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus starts off and he tells them this, this first bit, which is called the birth pains. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pangs. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, you'll be hated, etc. So it goes through the persecution. Then he gets really to, to, the, to the nature of their question. What's going to be the sign of your parousia? Then he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, etc., etc. Trumpet calls, gathering together, four winds, one end of heaven to the other. The rapture. So, we have here a picture of an answer to a question about when he will return. But the interesting thing is this birth pangs. He says, these things are going to happen, but they're also, the end is not yet. And don't be alarmed at these things. They aren't the signs you asked about, but they are apparently a part of this story, right? Because they are in answer to the question, what will be the signs? He felt it necessary to bring these, what we call birth pains up. 
Now, as we talked about in another podcast, the birth pangs are a source currently right now. It's a big deal because of COVID-19 and really has always been a, a big deal with regard to anybody wanting to make whatever is happening in the newspapers relevant to the Bible. They always have to go to the birth pangs. And so by hook or by crook, somebody has always tried to find a way to make these things just mean, can mean anything in terms of timeline. So like a, a typical concept like John Walvert or whatever is would say that these birth pains, these wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, various places, they've been going on for millennia. He would say 2,000 years. They've been going on since the moment of Pentecost up until now, these birth pains have been happening. So there's typically an idea that these things will have to increase in intensity. So a lot of the discussion really relies on, well, these wars got to get, keep getting worse. The, the earthquakes got to keep getting worse. The famine's got to keep getting worse. The pestilence got to keep getting worse, where it kind of all falls apart. Uh, you know, and I would say, and basically any war, the War of 1812, the Spanish-American War, the War of the Roses, it doesn't matter. They all get to be a part of this. I, I think it, I mean, if it were true, I'd just deal with it. But uh, since I believe and I can show that it's not true, it really does dilute this uh, this prophecy because it basically makes it meaningless. Because as we know, famines don't just increase intensity for 2,000 years. They're varied. In the, and same thing with wars and everything else. Without going into all the stuff that I've mentioned in other podcasts, I think that you can tell that this must be in relationship to the 70th week of Daniel. The birth pains are, in effect, those things that happen before the midpoint. If you want to put it like this, the first three and a half years. It may not be exactly that clean, but it, it, it helps to understand where I'm going with this. The birth pains are essentially the first three and a half years. Uh, the midpoint is obviously the midpoint, starting in verse 15 of the Olive Discourse. From that point, we're, we're absolutely clear where we are, starting in verse 15. It's less clear from verse uh, 4 to, to 14 because uh, of this debate about where do we put the, mid, the, the birth pangs in relationship to the grand end time scheme. People like John Walford have said it's just been going on for 2,000 years. I and others, uh, including pre-tribulationalists, this isn't a pre-wrath exclusive or anything. Uh, this, is, this is just... People that say this has to be in relationship to the final 70th week. And because of Revelation chapter 6, the, Revelation 6 is where we find the seals on the scroll, right? And the first four of those seals are commonly referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, with the first horseman being a white rider on the white horse, uh, going out conquering and to conquer, pretty much universally understood to be the Antichrist. We've got the famine horse. We've got the pestilence horse. We've got the death horse, uh, which is all about the persecution. And then we've got, of course, the martyrs uh, in, the, in the fifth seal, which of course corresponds to this whole timeline, because that's what Jesus is talking about. The elect just being totally destroyed during this time. It's also what Daniel talks about, by the way. And then the, the, the coup de grace is the sixth seal, of course, because there is no, no ambiguity there. They mentioned the exact same, extremely specific sign. Uh, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then you have, of course, a resurrection, which you see in the next chapter, this uh, multitude that no one can number appearing in heaven all of a sudden. So it's all very, very obviously connected in terms of the Olivet Discourse and the uh, the the uh, Revelation chapter six and the seals, and this isn't just again me. It's, these are people like John MacArthur that have recognized this uh, parallel. But if that's true, and it's weird because a lot of pre-tribbers and stuff they they recognize that they'll 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 do sermons about that, but they 
they don't understand, then you got to, you got to, because in the pre-trib world, you don't ever look at Matthew 24 as it has anything to do with the rapture anyway. And there's just so many, as I talk about in the film, there, no pre-trib interpretations of Matthew 24 are like snowflakes. They're no two alike. So it's just mass confusion in that world anyway with Matthew 24. So if there was anything to see in Matthew 24, they most likely wouldn't see it in the first place. And I think that's probably where the problem is because they've been told it's for the Jews. Don't pay attention to it. Or at least the early ones were told that. What I'm trying to say here is that once you apply that uh, to Matthew 24, it becomes clear that it's the same thing. False Christ, false Christ, famines, famines, earthquakes, earthquakes, uh, killing, killing, martyrs, martyrs, sun, moon, and stars, sun, moon, and stars, and rapture. And if that's true, then that means that the birth pangs must start with the beginning of the 70th week, or at least the, the appearance of the Antichrist pre-midpoint. And I would say the best place for that is the beginning of the 70th week where he makes a covenant with many, apparently starts the daily sacrifices or whatever. It's my understanding, especially as I've gone through this more recently, that he he really does seem to make a, some kind of messianic claim at the covenant. But it's not believable necessarily until he does the messianic thing, right? The messianic thing is he has to he has to deliver. He has to save Israel. He has to protect Israel. He has to destroy the enemies. He has to fulfill Isaiah 11 and Zechariah 2 of the Messiah, literally creating greater Israel again, right? Creating the borders of, of Genesis 15 and restoring the, the kingdom to Israel, exactly what his disciples wanted to do in Acts chapter 1. So, so that's Daniel 11, 40 through 45, which is the wars against the specific enemies. It's interesting, in the debate, I got Joel to admit that the Antichrist is completely destroying the Muslim world, right? Something I never, I've read all Joel's books, never heard him mention that the Antichrist actually, well, he doesn't actually mention this in the debate, but he, he concedes that the Antichrist is destroying the Muslim world, but it goes even further than that. The Antichrist is being attacked by the Muslim world before he completely destroys them. So he looks like he is defending when he when he gets to win this war, which I submit will uh, will be portrayed a lot like Gog Magog. But in any case, he comes back victorious. And I, I'm going somewhere with this. I know it sounds like the same stuff I keep saying all over and over, but I just need to set set the stage here. And in Daniel 11, 44 through 45, so we have those wars, and we know that those wars must be before the abomination of desolation at the midpoint. We know that because of the next verse, which starts a new chapter, Daniel 12, 1, which says at that time. Now, generally speaking, those kind of timing connections just are really hard in my experience to get around. At that time, Michael will stand up. There will be a time of trouble such as never since there was a nation until that time, etc. The very same phrase that Jesus uses, a time that will be unlike any other, you know, etc. To refer to the very same thing, this greatest persecution of all time that begins after the midpoint. In other words, we have very clear evidence that the wars of the Antichrist are before the, the midpoint, which is before the resurrection, because the rest of Daniel 12 talks about the those who sleep in the dust will awake, and it's obviously the rapture, right? So we've got, we've got a perfect uh, timeline, which is, of course, not surprising. Jesus says, when you see the abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So, and he's already been quoting Daniel uh, uh, in this passage. Uh, so it's no surprise that we're got parallels to Daniel here. I would also submit, uh, because at the end of Daniel 11, uh, it says he will come to his end and no one will help him, which I take to mean because of the, uh, at that time, he's doing more stuff, obviously sitting in the temple, creating this time of trouble, that he seems to resurrect at that time. 
Now, we know that the Antichrist seems to resurrect. It's one of the more uh, consistent doctrines about him and Revelation, uh, the deadly wound that was healed, etc. And I think this gives us a pretty good indication of where that happens, which is right before the abomination of desolation. In other words, his, his death and resurrection, apparent death and resurrection, if you need, if you need it that way, uh, happens right before he sits in the temple declaring himself to be God. Anyway, so all that to say, this particular thing that I found was all about this phrase, rumors of wars in Matthew 24. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So it was just that idea. Why rumors of wars? I'd never really thought about it or done any research about it. It just, it just is an odd thing to say. Do you, is there ever a situation, maybe when you didn't have news or whatever, you would hear of rumors of wars, but you know, that's not really going to be a part of the end time scenario. What does that even, what does that even mean? So I did a word study on that term rumors, that word rumors, and I looked in the Septuagint, which is the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament. It's not a very common word. I don't, it may be the only time it showed up in Daniel. I, I need to refresh my memory on this. I don't have it in front of me right now, but it's, it, if not, it was like one of very, very few times, but I think it might've been the only time it appeared in Daniel was directly in the context of Daniel 11, 40 through 45. In fact, verse 44, which says, but the news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. So the news or rumors, the, the rumors of the, from the east and north shall alarm him. Now, in context of this, this war, this, this campaign that he's fighting, you should know that he's basically already finished the campaign. He's destroyed uh, the Assyrians. He's destroyed Egypt. He's destroyed uh, Libyans and the and all these other other people are gone. But at the very end of this, right before he so plants his so-called palatial tents between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, right before that verse is where we get this last little thing. But news from the east, rumors from the east or the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. If you wanted to say wars and rumors of wars. That is exactly what's happening here in Daniel 11, 40 through 45. You heard of wars and rumors of wars, chronologically speaking as well. You've got the wars first, then you have the rumors of wars. But these wars, again, are the wars of Antichrist. And I would say that it's interesting, as I've mentioned before, that these countries are attacking him. The, the big dogs in this fight, the king of the north and the king of the south, or otherwise basically Assyria and Egypt, which are the two main ones that a Messiah has to to, to conquer because of all the messianic prophecies, right? From Assyria to Egypt, that's the borders of greater Israel, right? So they're the, they're the big dogs and they attack him first. Now he destroys them, but they attack him. And again, if we plug this back into the timeline of Matthew 24, which I'm trying to, to suggest here is that Jesus starts that from the false Christs, a deceiving many. Well, that, that's lining up with the Antichrist and the first seal, the, the rider on the white horse. And then I think you can connect Daniel here as well because Daniel doesn't let you off the hook. Daniel gives you a couple of different uh, time signatures here. He gives you the wars first. I believe he also gives you the uh, where the wars are in relationship to the midpoint because of Daniel 12.1. And then he gives you the rapture after that when you've got the... Uh, those in the dust uh, of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life. So we've got the exact same timeline in Daniel uh, as we have in the Olivet Discourse, as we have in Revelation 6. And because we can merge all three of those chronologically, 
Uh, and this is just, I know what I just mentioned here with the rumors of wars, I don't intend that to be some kind of slam dunk or anything, but it's just one more uh, block in the wall, brick in the wall that says this is the right track. That this is equated. Daniel 11 and, and the beginning of 12 are related to the Olivet Discourse and related to Revelation 6, which means that the birth pangs just simply are not going on for 2,000 years. And it means that the birth pangs won't start until the Antichrist is on the scene and have having made a covenant with Israel that results in sacrifices being made at the temple. In other words, we're not in the end times because of COVID-19. We're not in the end times because of World War II or any of the other wars or any of the other famines or any of the other earthquakes. Another thing that I found that I thought was fairly interesting that I had not seen before was in 2 Thessalonians 2, and this is regarding the Antichrist sitting in the temple declaring himself uh, to be God, exalting himself above every so-called God or object of worship is the way it says it here in the net. Uh, and I want to just talk about that because this was brought up because Joel's argument against the Antichrist sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God, you know, my concept is that he's doing that to to act as though he's the Messiah, because of course that's what the Messiah does in the millennium and the eternal kingdom. He sits in the temple and he receives the worship of the world in a pilgrimage system of the world. So the Antichrist is essentially trying to 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 do that. And Joel's argument is, no, he is uh, he's blaspheming God. He is trying to delegitimize it, kind of like Antiochus, who sacrificed a pig on the altar, etc., trying to delegitimize Judaism uh, by this uh, abomination of desolation and not legitimize it. So, so yeah, I, and I would argue that, and I do argue that a number of different ways. First, I would say that blasphemy against God is in the eye of the beholder in the, uh, in the Bible. I mean, Jesus was put on trial for blasphemy. Uh, you've got situations where a, a person who sat in the temple declaring himself to be God that was not God, that would be blasphemy against God no matter which way you look at it. But I would also would argue that my, my understanding of what the Antichrist is doing as he sits in the temple is going to be blasphemy against God. I, I mean, he's definitely going to be preaching some kind of false doctrine. Because he's not really God, and he's got to fake a bunch of stuff, like why did the rapture not happen? Why did a whole lot of stuff that he can't actually make happen? So he's going to twist Scripture quite a bit. And I would say, it, in that sense, it's kind of like a Jehovah's Witness, who certainly are very blasphemous against God and their doctrine. At the same time, a Jehovah's Witness believes that they are true Christians, the only ones that got it right, you know? So I think, yes, you can have blasphemy against God. Uh, and declared yourself to be God. It doesn't. None of this necessitates him knocking over the temple stuff and saying, this is all wrong. You guys are totally wrong. This is against Judaism. But anyway, my, my point is the thing that I found here was in trying to find a way to show that, um, that was objective. In 2 Thessalonians 2, when it says, starting in verse 4, who he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. And every time I read that before, I kind of had an idea of like, I'm above God himself. Like God, I'm above God. I'm above anything that can possibly be worshipped. I am that. Uh, you know, is a sort of broad, sweeping generalization of him just being better than, I don't know. I didn't even know how to interpret that. But if you, again, do a word study on some of these words, particularly the object of worship and the so-called God here. Now, the, the so-called God, that's fairly general, uh, but... You can see this being translated this way in other t other places of so-called gods to refer to gods that are not gods, uh, like in the uh, about whether or not you should eat idols or meat sacrificed to idols, 
that discussion was like, these are so-called gods, et cetera, et cetera. And that, and, and that term is used in the New Testament to say, these are gods, things that people call gods, but aren't actually gods. And that actually can mean what people call gods. In other words, what other nations or religions believe in. But the object of worship is a very rare word. In fact, it's only used one other time in the Bible. That is in Acts 17, I believe it is, where the where uh, Paul is in Athens, Greece, and he's on, you know, he's, he's at the unknown God statue. But it's not even that that particular statue. He he uses this term for object of worship to refer to all the statues of all the Greek gods that he had just passed on his way up there. All your objects of worship, a very rare, rare word. And because of that, what seems to be happening here is that the Antichrist is distinguishing himself. He's over every Greek or every worldly god and every pagan object of worship. And look how the Net uh, Bible translates the rest of this. And as a result, he takes his seat in God's temple, displaying himself as God. And the Net actually uh, capitalizes God's temple and God, and lowercases all the other gods. In other words, they see the distinction in the, the underlying words that the Antichrist is saying, I, as I sit in this temple, am declaring myself to be over every worldly god, over every uh, worldly idol. And as a result, I'm sitting in God's temple, no doubt about where he's at, uh, declaring myself to be God, that is to say, capital G. So as opposed to him supposedly delegitimizing the temple here, I think we have some fairly objective proof that he is legitimizing it. All right, so let's move on to my analysis of the debate and how it went. Um, as I said earlier, I think that I did really good. I think that my arguments were solid. I think that Joel, for the most part, didn't really even address anything substantive that I brought up. I mean, for example, as he even admitted in his uh, second round that like one third of Chris's theory is about Mystery Babylon, yet in that same video, he says he doesn't have time to deal with it. Like, okay. So you admit that one third of my argument is that, but you just don't have time, but you have time to do what seems like a bunch of time wasting and all kinds of rabbit trails that he goes down and everything. Um, it wasn't really until the lap, there was like a, a round where I got to write in three questions to get him to answer, like he has to answer these questions. <laughs> and it wasn't until that last little five minute segment that I got him to even address the issues. I mean, he did bring up uh, the found no more verse in Mystery Babylon, which I wrote a chapter about and, you know, have dealt with many times. But that was, as far as Mystery Babylon, that was the only thing he brought up. I would say the vast majority of any Bible verses he quoted against the theory or his whole, his whole really argument against the theory rested on verses about either Gog Magog or Armageddon. In other words, to my response, to my claim that the Antichrist would uh, claim to be the Jewish Messiah, Joel would quote a verse about Armageddon and say, nah, because the Antichrist is destroying Israel at Armageddon. He would also quote a verse from Gog Magog and say, look, Gog Magog go against Israel at Armageddon. Huh? Huh? You know, and he would just, I, I, he probably quoted every possible verse there is in the Bible about either Armageddon or Gog Magog at various times in this debate. And, and there were multiple rounds where I was like, this is irrelevant. I mean, not only does whatever happened after the day of the Lord starts is irrelevant to what the Antichrist is doing at the beginning. In other words, let's how to, how to put that. This is one way to put it uh, that I put in the debate. It's a necessary part of the Antichrist doctrine 
that the Antichrist turns on his capital city at the end. That's just what Revelation 17 says, that he turns right before he goes to war against the Lamb, i.e. Armageddon. He and his kings turn against Mystery Babylon, burn her with fire, etc., etc. So no matter what you believe the Antichrist is, no matter what you believe Mystery Babylon is, and, and let's put it in Joel's perspective, Joel thinks an Islamic Antichrist is going to be sitting in Mecca, right? His, his, his Mystery Babylon is Mecca. Then, if Joel wants to be consistent with Revelation 17, his Islamic Antichrist is going to turn on Mecca in the end and burn it with fire. Does that mean that during the first 99.9% .9 of his career, he wasn't pretending to like Mecca? And Joel would say, of course not. And more to the point, I think that really everything from the beginning of the covenant, probably up through the midpoint significantly until the day of the Lord starts, there's going to be a, a patina of whatever he's trying to convince people of. In this case, I believe that he's acting. There's no evidence, in my opinion, that he is acting aggressively towards Israel up until Armageddon. And I would say there's a huge gap between whenever the day of the Lord starts in Armageddon, where we just don't know even what he's doing. There's no, as far as I can tell on the timeline, the Antichrist might as well be hunkered down in a bunker or something from the moment the wrath of God starts until Armageddon when he basically commits suicide. Joel brings up another argument that's almost exactly like this. As I say, this is almost his entire sort of argument against this, was about the two-thirds of uh, Israel. He says that, that, during, that they're going to be killed by the Antichrist in Armageddon. And he says, well, how do you explain that, Chris? They're being killed by the Antichrist at Armageddon. Why would they follow somebody that kills them? I kid you not. That's an argument that he made that, that as if they would have known, oh, well, seven years uh, earlier when I made this covenant, this guy's going to kill me. I have a premonition seven years from now, he's going to kill me. So I'm not going to follow him. You know, most of the things that he brought up specifically are almost not even worth mentioning. I mean, I say that, I say that truthfully. I mean, he brought up a lot of racism stuff. Um, I mean, I think that he really wanted to make this about racism from the beginning. He brought up, uh, you know, odd things like uh, there was several minutes that he uh, argued that I was wrong for doing a Bible study in the book of Revelation because I said something about how I saw something in Revelation and it helped me to interpret another thing. Oh, I was saying that uh, Mystery Babylon actually helped me come to the original theory about the Antichrist presenting himself as the Jewish Messiah. And he goes on this tangent about how ridiculous that is to do a study in Revelation and then go back backwards. And, you know, it was like, what? He would point to, he did this in a number of different ways and say, you know, how, look how ridiculous this theory is because there's not that many Jews in the world. And Chris is saying that the Jews are going to conquer the world and kill everybody. Like, First of all, he knows that's not what I believe. I mean, he knows in the very podcast that he cited twice in his opener, I had said that I believe that the Antichrist army comes from somewhere besides Israel. I think to the West and probably Greece or Macedonia or something like that. In other words, the, the army that the Antichrist uses to conquer the world will be primarily, if not exclusively, Gentile. And then in addition, when, the, uh, when Israel does accept him as a messiah, well, so does almost everybody in the world. I mean, that's what we know about the Antichrist, right? So... So most, I'd say 99.9% .9 of his followers are going to be Gentiles. But even after all that, he was still saying that I believe that the Jews are going to take over the world and uh, and kill everybody. And look how anti-Semitic that was. One question I asked him during my, my three questions that he had to answer was, what does he do with the blood of the prophets found in Mystery Babylon and the righteous or the blood of the uh, slain found in Mystery Babylon? Because both of those things, Jesus and other places say, can only be found in Jerusalem. Jesus says that it's impossible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. 
He also says in another place about Jerusalem that he's going to blame Jerusalem for all the righteous blood shed on the earth from righteous Abel to Zechariah, son of Berkiah, whom you killed between the temple and the altar. So Jesus, Abel obviously wasn't killed in Jerusalem, but yet Jesus says Jerusalem is to blame for his righteous blood. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that killest the prophets, etc. So it's a fairly good argument uh, for Mystery Babylon, and he didn't touch it during the debate. So it was a you know, something I had to ask him in my question and answer. And he said that, first of all, he said that what Jesus meant was about the idea that it was impossible for a prophet to perish outside Jerusalem. And you'll have to watch this for yourself to see what I'm saying here. He just dodged it. He says something like, it's only if you are called to Jerusalem, which I don't even know what he means by that. But his real argument against it was quoting uh, that Moses didn't, for example, die in Jerusalem. He mentions a few others that didn't die in Jerusalem, which is, of course, true, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says it's impossible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. In context, Jesus is obviously talking about martyrdom, right? Killing Zechariah between the the altar. Uh, What about Abel being murdered by his brother? Look up the word for perish in that context. What is it? Luke, uh, sorry here, I should have had this. Luke 13, 33. Um, because that word is, and I'm no Greek scholar, but I can look at a lexicon entry and say, there's not even an instance where this was translated as die. This is violent death. I'm sure you could make a case that it possibly could in some sense be if you died of old age. I mean, technically, but it's just not used that way. It's used in a violent fashion, which we don't even really need because we know in context, Jesus was talking about martyrdom and Moses wasn't martyred and and the others he quoted weren't martyred. So find me a martyred prophet outside Jerusalem and then maybe we can talk about that particular answer to the question. The other thing I asked him in the question and answer session was about the great city. So this is a situation where uh, Mystery Babylon is called the great city with that, you know, ha, great city, the great city, the definite article, multiple times. But also Jerusalem is called the great city in the book of Revelation. Uh, John in Revelation 11 says the great city in which the Lord was cru- crucified. Um, gives it that definite article, the great city, in a pretty bad context. It says who uh, it was a situation where the dead bodies of the the, the two witnesses were laying dead in the streets of Jerusalem, and uh, he calls it the great city, who's also spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. So John here is calling Jerusalem Sodom. He's calling Jerusalem Egypt. He's saying this in the context of the dead bodies of the righteous two witnesses are lying dead in the streets of Jerusalem, and people are giving gifts, etc. Whatever the context is, the point is, you definitely have in the book of Revelation the great city being called Jerusalem and the great city uh, is being referred to as Mystery Babylon. So I said, what do you, what do you do with that situation? And he launches into what I've heard before, what people do is they talk about this two city narrative. You know, it's always said in this sort of haughty context is like, no, they don't really understand that the Bible is really the story of two different cities. And it's one good city and one bad city. And that's what Chris doesn't understand. And of course, he never quotes a single verse to support any of this. He certainly doesn't quote the verse that I'm actually talking about where where this wonderful city that he's talking about is being called Sodom and Egypt. Um, He doesn't mention that verse, certainly in this context. And, you know, of course, there's some truth to that, of course. I mean, the New Jerusalem is a city with nothing, nothing bad in it whatsoever in the millennium and in the eternal kingdom but not in the context of what we're talking about, the question I'm asking. 
Uh, let's see. He talked a lot. We, we spent a lot of unfortunate time talking about Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Um, my argument, well, his, he starts off his whole basically thing about the seed of the serpent saying that the Antichrist can't be uh, Jewish because the seed of the serpent uh, has to be a Gentile. To which I was, you know, responded, I don't see how that makes any sense soteriologically. I mean, I believe that the, uh, that the Antichrist will be the seed of the serpent and that the seed of the woman will ultimately be Jesus. But if you want to take it any further and you say, well, the seed of the serpent really is this race or that race, then you've also got to come up with a theory about how that wound up happening. Like, how did the Gentiles wound up being the seed of the serpent exactly? And why is that a proof text against the Antichrist being Jewish. So I basically said, it sounds like you are like have a modified view of the seed of the serpent heresy. Uh, to that, basically the next round was like, I mean, at least what, five minutes of him being, you know, quote unquote outraged about that uh, and saying how disappointed he was in me and everything. And to which I said, and then, you know, wasted maybe 30 seconds in the next debate saying, look, you're the one that said that the seed of the serpent is somehow proof that the Antichrist won't be Jewish. And then, of course, he walks it back in the next video saying, I just really thought it was spiritual. Well, if you really thought it was spiritual, then what are you doing using Genesis 3.15 as any kind of, it's completely irrelevant to this debate. Another topic that maybe isn't irrelevant to the debate, but is pretty close to irrelevant, and we spent way too much time on it, was Daniel 2. I don't know, many of you probably know that my view on Daniel 2 is that it's not the same as Daniel 7. Uh, Daniel 2 is a prophecy of the inception of the kingdom of God, the statue that hits the statue. It's a small stone, but it grows into a large mountain over time. It's the, it says that in the days that they set up a kingdom, that rock is called a kingdom. It's a, it's, and we learn from the interpretation, it's the kingdom of God. It's this thing that starts small and grows. We know from Jesus that Jesus says, number one, the kingdom of God isn't going to come with signs. It's not going to, you're not going to say, look, there it is or whatever in terms of its, in fact, he says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He says uh, that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that starts as a small seed that grows into a large tree or it's like a leaven hidden in you know, whatever that grows over time, it sort of expands. So, so it's a prophecy that the, the, the kingdom of God will essentially be established during Jesus's time, which I would say 12 apostles or however you want to look at it. And it grows into this massive tree over time. It's the stone that turns into a great mountain. And this idea of the toes and, the, and everything else, I know I've used to hold all kinds of theories. I thought it was a Nephilim. I thought it was all kinds of stuff that revived Roman Empire before but after reading Charles Cooper's paper, uh, Daniel 2 or Daniel 7, equal or not equal, I don't think I can ever make that eschatological again. That being said, I think Daniel 7 is totally eschatological. I think all four of those beasts are contemporaneous. It has to do with the Antichrist. If we wanted to talk about anything that had to do with the Antichrist, we should have talked about Daniel 7. My point is that, in my view, Daniel 2 doesn't have anything to, any bearing on this whatsoever. I could see how somebody looking outside would say, uh, you just believe that because that way you don't have to think that it's the Roman Empire. And I would say, well, Joel doesn't think it's the Roman Empire. He he actually takes the traditional view, but he just sort of waves a wand over it and makes it be the Islamic Empire. But even in the end, it's not even the gotcha that I think Joel thinks it is. In other words, he's trying to say, look, Chris doesn't believe that uh, Daniel 2 is the Roman Empire or the Islamic Empire or anything. And to which I would say... Yes, but what you're trying to say is that I did that in order to make it be a Jewish thing, right? Uh, when in fact, I actually have no reason not to believe it's a Gentile thing, because I actually believe, for example, in Daniel 7, that that Antichrist beast, the one with the 10 horns and subdues three of them or whatever, is a Gentile nation, again, probably 
uh, Greece, Macedonia, something like that. I believe that he comes from somewhere in the Balkans like this. So I have no reason to say, for example, why not go to Daniel 2 and do what, what Joel did and say, well, since I think it's Greece, and why don't I just say that, oh, the Roman Empire actually incorporated Greece into its, uh, you know, later on in its existence or whatever. Had Gre- I mean, I could do all kinds of little funny business or whatever if I just wanted to do that, right? I could easily revive Greece instead of that. I mean, I have no reason not to do that. And he thinks that it's some kind of thing where I can't do it because I think it's Jewish. Well, no, I could easily play uh, uh, fast and loose with this text and make my Greece thing work with a traditional view. So again, I don't even think it's the potential gotcha that he thinks it is. The final thing I'll mention, I'll kind of circle back to yet another thing that has almost no relevance to the debate, but got so much more airtime than it deserved, was Gog Magog. And I've already talked briefly about it, but Joel has a view that Gog Magog is the same war as the War of Armageddon. Okay, so... Uh, As I mentioned, so much of his argument in this debate was, hey, look at the Antichrist, he's being mean to Israel at Armageddon, therefore he can't be nice to Israel at the beginning of the seven years, which I've already shown is, is just not a good argument. So because he believes that Gog, Magog, and Armageddon are the same war, it's kind of like I get a twofer, right? I, I can just say the same thing. It's just it's, it's wrong either way you look at it, whether you're quoting a Gog Magog verse or an Armageddon verse. It, would, it might be a problem that I'd have to deal with and would warrant all the time that we spent on it if he believed that Gog Magog was, for example, before the seven-year period, in which case I'd have to, and, you, and he still believed that the Antichrist was named Gog and, and all this stuff. And if you believe that, then I'd have to get into all this detail about, detail about when the Gog Magog war happens and show that that's not possible in the first place. It's a false premise or whatever. But I don't have to, as I mentioned. So all this to say, we've, we spent way too much time in every round going back and forth. And it's my fault because I knew that I had him on Gog Magog. I, I've read his books. I know he doesn't have an answer for the Revelation 20 verse that says that Gog Magog is specifically after uh, the thousand years are completed. He's never mentioned that. And he has this wild, you know, very intricate theory about Gog Magog, but he's never actually talked about the one verse that matters. So I mentioned it in my first response, and of course that required several rounds of going back and forth about it. But he still never actually talked about the verse that I wanted to talk about. So I actually, in one of my three questions at the very end, I used it to ask, again, this is my fault, um, what what he actually thought about that verse. And you got to watch that. I mean, I it sounds like, and he definitely didn't commit to anything, but it sounds like he admits that there must be two Gog Magog wars, which is the only thing that you can do. I mean, basically, once you're once you're down in the dirt with this, you have to go like, okay, okay, there's two Gog Magog wars, the one that, you know, I like, and then the one that's in the Bible here. And I don't know how I'm going to work that in or whatever. There's just two guys named Gog, two, two wars, two exact same situations. Anyway, so it sounds like he does that. Uh, but my point is, after he gets done doing that, he says, and I just want everybody to know, that this whole theory about Gog Magog, Chris's entire theory rests on this idea. I mean, this is what he says. Chris's entire theory, if this domino falls or however he says it, then Chris's theory just goes away. And I'm like, who is that for? I mean, is that for the people who weren't following this debate at all? Anyway, so go check out the debate. I'll post the uh, actual video on BibleProphecyTalk.com. I will uh, post the audio at some point on the podcast feed. Also, I uh, am giving away my book, The Islamic Antichrist Debunked, for free forever on PDF. Just go to BibleProphecyTalk.com, go to the Books tab, and you will see a link to the PDF. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.